Can I say Happy New Year to all of you? Whoa, you believe that? It's a new year already, 2010? Didn't it just seem like the other day we were ringing in the year 2000 and we're already rolling over to a new decade? Holy cow, like someone's speeding up the clock or something. Not sure. Uh, Did you have a celebrative holiday, right? Did you, woo, big party? Um, I am old and I am lame. I fell asleep on the couch on New Year's Eve around 9 o'clock, maybe 9.30, and uh, was awakened rudely by fireworks, and I said, oh, it must be midnight, darn neighbors, need to get some new neighbors or something like that, and they were shooting off fireworks. I looked at the clock, oh, indeed, it is midnight. I bid myself a happy new year, and I made my way to bed where Dana had been asleep for several hours. I'm sure she said she tried to wake me up from my slumber on the couch, but... Uh, I'll look at the video footage later and see if she really did that or not. Uh, no, we, we don't have security. Yeah, it was a joke. Uh, on a more serious note than that, I told you a few weeks ago that our very good friend, one of our eldest members, Virginia Cox, passed away. And uh, her family was excited to see her suffering end, and she was finally with Jesus. And I told you that we were uh, anticipating that George would be able to get himself back to church. And uh, George and Virginia were some of our eldest members. They've been around here since almost the very beginning of Journey. And, uh, And we're an answer to prayer as we were asking the Lord to send us some gray hair, some wisdom and here comes uh, a couple of people in their 80s at the time. And, uh, well, I'll be darned if George didn't go be with Jesus just this past week. Like, uh, he was married to Virginia for almost 70 years, and I think he just thought, like, all right, three weeks apart from her, that's enough. I'm out of here. And so he went to be with her, and I'll bet their reunion was a very sweet one. And uh, please be praying for their whole family and want you to know that we will, uh, for a very, very long time around here, hold George and Virginia in very high regard as they were the answer to a lot of prayers and just were a delightful addition to the Journey Church family. We will miss both of them uh, greatly. There's a show on TV, maybe you've seen it, it's called Clean House. Have you seen this one? Uh, It's a show in which experts in cleaning and organizing and remodeling and painting and so on, they sweep into these very cluttered homes for the purpose of leaving them more comfortable and attractive and livable for the home's inhabitants. And you can imagine what it's like as these uh, experts face this high-challenge environment. Clothes strewn all across floors, overflowing cabinets, closets literally stuffed from top to bottom, bottom, uh, clutter-covered countertops, overwhelmingly disgusting kitchens, bedrooms, bathrooms, living rooms, homes where there's not a single clean room in the entire place. You can just imagine. And as the show begins, uh, it's the experts' first order of business to sort of take an inventory of all the stuff in the house, and then these very difficult decisions are made about what to keep and what to sell at this uh, upcoming yard sale. And as you can imagine, uh, the process is far from easy as the home's inhabitants hesitate and cling to favorite clothes from decades uh, far past, childhood keepsakes, space-hogging junk like we all have. Finally, though, the home's inhabitants, uh, they, they yield and the yard sale happens, the proceeds are then used to fund this organizational makeover that takes place. And it goes, as it goes with all shows in this genre, the home's occupants leave and the work then begins. Rooms are entirely then cleaned out and overhauled with efficiency and attractiveness in mind. New paint covers the walls and ceilings. Curtains are hung, cabinets are set, walls decorated nicely. The transformation that takes place in these homes is 
really nothing short of dramatic. And then the moment that everyone who watches the show has been waiting for, the home's occupants, they return, don't they? And any nervous anticipation on their part very quickly gives way to excitement and laughter and even tears as they repeat to the experts who uh, overhauled their home, thank you, thank you, thank you at their first sight of what's taken place. Now, spiritually speaking, a new year offers every single one of us the opportunity to conduct our own personal version of clean house. It's a time when we can take inventory of the landscape of our heart and soul, a time for getting rid of some things that are incongruent with what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. As well, a new year can be a time for renewing commitments to the things that are congruent with what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And today, in the time that we have together, I want us to focus on four commitments, just four commitments, which if you will follow through on these four commitments in this new year, will make a radical difference in your life. As a matter of fact, I would even go so far as to say that if you follow through on all four, all four, not just one, not a couple, not three, all four of these commitments, 2010 could literally be the most significant year of your life to this point. Four commitments for the new year. Number one, here it is. Will you commit yourself to forgetting your failures? Will you commit yourself in this new year to forgetting your failures? A couple of thousand years ago, one of the greats, the Apostle Paul of the Christian faith, said this, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 13. I focus on this one thing. There's like a New Year's verse if you ever heard one. I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past, catch this, And looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. I literally do not know of a more relevant or practical commitment for us to make at the start of a new year than that little nugget right there. Paul says, look, here's here's what I'm up to. Here's what I'm doing. I'm choosing to focus my whole heart, my whole soul, my whole mind on forgetting the past and everything I've done and said and all that stuff that's really just made a mess of my life and other people's lives. And instead, I'm looking ahead, ahead to what God has for me. But how many people, how many of us sitting right here right now today live our lives chained up, locked up, shackled up, imprisoned, by our past. It doesn't have to be that way, Christ followers. It does not have to be that way. God gives you the ability and he gives you the permission to forget entirely about your failures, to be done with them, to leave them in the past. Now, every single one of us in this room has failed in some way in the past year. Thankfully, most of us will not see our failures recorded for all of history and public consumption on television. Aren't you glad about that? But it's enough, isn't it, that they're recorded on our hearts and mind. We carry them with us. For lots of us, our failures are very painful memories. Maybe for you, it's the memory of how you failed in some relationship. You made the wrong decision, you said the wrong thing, you did the wrong thing, and relationship over. Those of us who are parents might recall how sometime, maybe uh, uh, sometimes in 2009, we failed our children. We let them down. Lots of us, I know, failed our parents in some way last year. Maybe for you in 2009, it was a business failure or some financial collapse that 
defines your year 2009. And the biggie, sort of the crown jewel of failure. How many of us who are sitting right here right now today thinking, oh my gosh, I somehow in the year 2009, I let God down. And here's how. I let God down. I failed God. And will he ever forgive me? Will he ever? How am I going to get? But get this. God's heart is that we not ever allow ourselves to be bogged down, tied up, imprisoned by our past failures. God's heart is that we would leave the past in the past and that we would actually press on ahead into the future that he has for us. And I promise there's not a better time than the start of a new year to do exactly what Paul is inviting us to do. To say, God, I know, I get it, I screwed up when I, and then there's sort of a big blank there, right? Mine's really big, and so you just fill in the blank. I screwed up when I, fill it in. But God, that's all in the past now. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And would you please help me forget all of that? And would you please help me stop torturing myself about what I did, and did, did or didn't do, did or didn't say? God, would you please help me stop defining myself by my failures? I'm tapping God into what you have up ahead for me. That's what I'm focusing on from here on out, but only with your help and only by your grace, God. Amen. There it is. Commitment number one. Commit yourself to forgetting your failures. Jesus Christ came to earth that first Christmas because every single person, aside from him, screwed up. We botched it. And he lived his life as the perfect and sinless son of God so that he could free us by the cross from the chains of all our past screw-ups. Stop chaining yourself up to your past failures. Commit with God's help, by God's grace, to being freed up to live for all that he's got out ahead for you. Not chained up to your failures. Commit yourself to forgetting your failures. That's commitment number one. Commitment two, commit yourself to giving up your grudges. Commit yourself in this new year to giving up your grudges. It's in the third chapter of Colossians that we find God's invitation to this second life-changing commitment for 2010. Here it is, Colossians 3.13. This is the Apostle Paul writing again. Make allowance for each other's faults. Give grace. Just sum that up by saying, give grace. Make allowance for each other's faults. Give grace. And watch this. And forgive anyone who offends you. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. God is inviting and challenging us very directly and very personally to give up our grudges once and for all. That's what it means when the text says, forgive anyone who offends you. That's all people. That's everyone, anyone. You name it, you call it, forgive them. That means that the grudges that so many of us hold are completely and entirely incongruent with what it means to follow Jesus and be a Christian. Some of us are asking, what's a grudge? It's a great question. A grudge is a deep, ongoing, festering resentment that we cultivate in our hearts against someone else. It's an unforgiving spirit that leads to unforgiving attitudes that lead to unforgiving actions. Then, 
Harboring a grudge is all about nursing a dislike for someone because of some perceived or actual wrong that they've done to us. But grudges, get this, are dangerous. Grudges are dangerous. They will eat your lunch. They are just that destructive. Grudges destroy marriages. You know this. Grudges break up families. You know this. Grudges ruin friendships, don't they? Grudges even split churches. You know, one of the deep, dark secrets of the capital C church is the grudges that Christians harbor and nurse against one another, brother and sister in Christ. It's really the gross underbelly of the community of Christ followers who are supposed to be known by their incredible love, our incredible love for one another. But so often, instead of loving and forgiving, we hold and we nurse grudges against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right now, as a matter of fact, right in this room are people who are a part of this church and who are holding and nursing grudges against other people who are also sitting in this room and who are also a part of this church. And God has something very strong and very direct to say about that. He says, stop it. He says, knock it off. He says, give it up. Forgive them. Forgive them and move on. Just like that. Forgive them and move on. And according to God's word, the way that we give up a grudge is by doing just that. Forgiving faults, forgiving offenses. Now listen carefully to what God is saying here. He is not asking you to ignore what the person did to you. He is not asking you to pretend that it didn't happen. He's not asking you to condone it or pretend that it didn't matter, that it didn't cause you pain. What God does ask you to do, however, is to forgive the fault and forgive the offense to be done with it. That means that you walk through this process of acknowledging how wrong and how painful whatever it was that was done to you was, but that you decide an act of your will to forgive the person who committed the wrong against you. It is not a feeling. You will not feel that. It is an act of your will. I'm choosing to forgive because you will never feel like forgiving. Maybe you need to forgive the grudge that you have against your parents for what they did or didn't do. And it might be something from decades past or it might be something that happened yesterday with your parents. Maybe you need to release the grudge that you're holding against your children for the same reason, something they did or didn't do, maybe a long time ago or maybe this morning. Maybe you need to forgive the grudge that you're holding against your spouse. Maybe you need to forgive the grudge that you're holding against someone at work because of something they said or did or something you think they said or did. Maybe you need to give up the grudge you're holding that stems from some argument, some disagreement that you had with Someone where you didn't see eye to eye and it turned into much more than that. Maybe you need to give up some grudge that you're holding against someone who is a part of this church community. Because you see, God says that that deep-seated resentment that you have against that person or those people has got to go. It is incongruent with what it means to follow Jesus Christ and be a Christian. And what better time to make that decision than at the start of a new year. I'm starting over. I'm putting that grudge to bed once and for all. 
Now some people say, and I've heard people say it over and over and over again, I just can't forgive so-and-so for such-and-such. It's just too big, too deep, too... I just can't forgive him. Some of us have said that. But Paul walks that out for us in Colossians 3, doesn't he? Look at what the Bible says. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Now watch this. Remember, remember, carry this with you. Do not forget this. The Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. So don't tell God that you can't forgive someone. Because what you really mean when you say that you can't forgive is that you just won't. You just won't forgive. Because as Paul argues in very plain English, if Jesus can forgive me and us of our sin, despite it involving the pain and the agony and the suffering of the cross, then surely you, we, us, can give up our grudge. No matter its size, scope, or the longevity that we've been carrying it and nursing it and feeding it, harboring it. Forgive them. Let it go. Commitment number one. Commit yourself to forgetting your failures. Commitment two, commit yourself to giving up your grudges. And these don't get any easier. Commitment number three, commit yourself to restoring your broken relationships. Commit yourself to restoring your broken relationships. And I promise that when I said that, a name or some names came into your head, didn't it? You know of a broken relationship that you have right now with someone. And Jesus Christ, in Matthew chapter 5, he offers us a regular invitation to check in on how our personal relationships are working, how it's going. Look at Matthew 5, verse 23. This is what Jesus says. So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, here's another way to say that, if you are worshiping God in the setting that we call church, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, now, that doesn't mean that someone else has wronged you. That means that you've actually wronged them, that you've caused some damage. You've inflicted some harm on some relationship. If you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, you've wronged someone, look at what Jesus says. Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Not after the service of worship is over, not on Monday morning, not sometime next week, the next time I see that person or I have time to call that person, go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. See, you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, we are ministers of God's reconciliation. That means we're the conduits, the distributors of God's reconciliation because God through his son Jesus Christ is in the process of reconciling all of the creation back to himself into this state of shalom. It's the Jewish word for it. And we as followers of Jesus Christ get to play a role in the reconciling work of God. It's part of the reason we're on planet earth because you see it is the intent of God that all all, every last one of our human relationships reflect the glory of God 
so that people look on all, and I mean all of the relationships that we have one with another, and they will actually see God. They will see his nature, and they will see his character, and they will understand because of the way that we relate one to another who God is and how God functions, how he operates, what his program for redemption looks like. And so Jesus says, do not, don't you dare come to worship carrying with you the knowledge that you've wronged someone and then just left it outstanding. Don't do that. Make it right with the person that you've wronged and then go worship God. And then go worship God. I have no idea what it is. But the hours before church services in families' homes are like the devil's hours, aren't they? You know exactly, yes. They are like the devil's, I have no idea what it is other than a spiritual attack on your household. You're getting ready and it's the nightmare, right? The kids aren't mm, and your spouse isn't mm, and where's my uh, and... And people say things and attitudes settle in and then you get in the car and then you drive into this parking lot and you step out of the doors. <laughs> right? Fake. And then you walk in here and expect to step into a climate, an atmosphere, a posture of worship. Jesus says, no. No. Don't do that. Clean it up. Make it right. All the broken relationships that are outstanding before you walk in those doors, square them. Get them straight. Clean them up. Make it right with the people who you've wronged before you go worship God. Because you see, God has this very real urgency about maintaining these human relationships that very, very few of us actually live out. We're just not as committed to it as God would ask us to be. Which is silly, isn't it? I think about religious activity that tries to somehow appease our relationship with God. It's quite meaningless, isn't it, if it's not based on a purity within our own human relationships. And sure, we're absolutely ministers, we're agents of God's reconciliation, but there is a limit to what we can accomplish to that end, right? Which is why God gives this little instruction in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. We talk about it quite a lot around here. Here's what the Bible says, the Apostle Paul again, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. So yes, there is absolutely an urgency on God's part about go now, be reconciled now with the people who you've wronged. But we cannot ever force people to forgive us, which is why God is careful to include this directive in which the focus is do all you can, everything in your power. With that little phrase, God is inviting and challenging every one of us to do everything possible to make sure that our relationships are right and square. 
The Lord wants us to do everything in our power to restore the relationships that we've set sideways. Sure, some have gone wrong because of what other people have said, other people have done. They might not want that relationship restored for whatever reason. God recognizes that. That's why he emphasizes, do all you can. But when we're real honest and we take a hard look inside of us, how many of our relationships have gone wrong because of what we've said, what we've done, not the other person. It's us which is where this New Year's challenge comes into play. God says, look, if you've caused a rift in a relationship, you carry and you alone carry the primary responsibility to do everything in your power to make it right, to restore it, which includes the very thing that we find most difficult to do, which is asking for forgiveness. It is very hard to ask for forgiveness, isn't it? For some people, it's next to impossible. But how many marriages are not all they could be? Simply because one or both parties won't just say the words and mean them. I was wrong. I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? They just won't get to that place, that level of humility and honesty and candor. What broken relationship is God inviting you to go and restore in this new year? I'll bet you've thought of that person, those people. Make no mistake, while it might be one of the most difficult things you ever do, I promise you it will be one of the most significant things that you will ever do in this new year. To admit your past screw-ups, admit how you botched the relationship, and humbly, very humbly seek forgiveness from the people who you've hurt caused pain in the life of number one, commit yourself to forgetting your failures. Number two, Commit yourself to giving up your grudges. Number three, commit yourself to restoring your broken relationships. And they don't get any easier. Number four, commit yourself to turning your back on your sin. Commit yourself to turning your back on your sin. One of the most interesting facts to me about the Civil War here in America is that after the war was over, after the slaves had been emancipated, after they had been set free, countless slaves, some estimates put it at tens of thousands of slaves, decided, made a choice to stay on with their owners and continue to live just like slaves. Just as if they had never been set free. And we hear that and we're like, holy cow, that's crazy. That's unfathomable to us. But in the New Testament of the Bible, it says almost the very same thing about countless thousands, tens of thousands, millions of Christ followers who choose to live their lives in that exact same manner. Yes, Christ died to set us free from sin. Yes, the Holy Spirit has given us the power to be free, to overcome sin, to stand firm in the face of temptation. But just like former slaves, we still choose to obey Our old master, sin. Look at Romans 6, 12 and continuing on into verse 14. Here's what Paul writes again. Do not let sin control the way you live. There's a directive for us. Do not let sin control the way you live. And do not give in to sinful desires. Sin is no longer your master. That's the fourth and final challenge right there that I believe will truly make 2010 the most significant year of your life. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Sin is no longer your master. That's all about us choosing to turn our backs 
go in the opposite direction, flee from our sin. How many of you have one of those uh, wireless network things over at your house? You have a wireless network show? Yeah, a few of you have a wireless network. You know, it's the internet. You have the internet over at your house. We have the internet over at our house, and it comes over this wireless network thing. And uh, uh, it breaks more often than I think that it should. It's the weirdest thing. I have no idea why it happens. I don't know if it's because there's way too many devices trying to use it. I, uh, our, our wireless network is open, and so maybe our neighbors are like tampering with stuff or cars pulling up in front of our house. Come on over, just pull up and little wireless internet right in front of our house. It's just right over there. It's quite handy. I, I don't know what happens, but the thing, like, it just doesn't work all of a sudden. And so it's the same thing every single time. I go in and I unplug the wireless mo- uh, the, the modem deal and I unplug the wireless router thing. One, two, three, four. All right, I plug them back. That's long enough. I plug them back in and voila, the thing works again. Whatever it is, it's the same thing. It happens over and over and over and over again. And you think maybe we could fix it, but I, I you know, just unplug it and plug it back in and it's fine. Maybe that happens to you. Well, that very same principle, it's just as true in the spiritual realm as it is in the electronic internet realm. Christian writers of long ago, they used to talk about something called besetting sins. Maybe you've heard that term before, besetting sins. And what they meant by besetting sins were particular sins that a Christ follower was particularly prone to time and time and time again. Now, for some of us, when we first came to faith in Jesus Christ, we gave up certain sins with relative ease. And you hear stories about that all the time, how addicts, they come to faith in Jesus Christ, and whatever it was they were addicted to, they just put it down and never touched it again, never had a desire. I mean, it just was done. But then there are other things when people come to faith in Jesus Christ that we know are damaging to our relationship with God and others that we really battle with over and over and over and over again. That's our besetting sin. And lots of Christ followers continue in their same besetting sin over and over and over again. And lots and lots of Christ followers feel as if they're living a double life because of that besetting sin. Yes, I'm a Christ follower. Yes, I love Jesus. Most of my life is ordered around him. But then I've got this thing. I've got this besetting sin that I just lug around and I'm just in it all the time. And maybe that's how you've lived for years and years, maybe decades feeling constantly defeated by the same sin over and over and over again. But God's word tells us that even our besetting sin is not our master. Jesus died to set us free from even our besetting sins. And yet how many of us, how many of us even sitting here today live spiritually crippled lives because we've just become content, accustomed to this besetting sin? Maybe for you it's that hair trigger temper that you just can't get free. It just, bam, and you are so angry right there. Maybe for you, it's your caustic tongue that loves to assassinate other people's characters and wound them to the core of their being. Maybe for you, it's your critical judgmental attitude that silently runs everything and everyone into the ground. No one stands a chance with you. Maybe for you it's some sexual sin that you give into time and time and time and time and time again. God's challenge for us in the year 2010 is to turn our back on that sin, whatever it is, to actually stop letting it control our lives, to actually stop giving into it. 
The challenge is to stop obeying that sin that is our former, not now, master. Because, see, Jesus' death and resurrection broke, destroyed the power of sin in our lives. The Holy Spirit, supplied by God the moment we cross the line of faith in him, gives us the power that we actually need to stand firm in the face of whatever the sin is, whatever the temptation is. Which means that we don't have to live through 2010 still defeated by the same old sin. By asking for God's forgiveness, God, Jesus died for that sin. Please forgive me of that sin. And then God, by your Holy Spirit, would you please give me the power moment by moment? And that's how it is sometimes. Sometimes the ability to resist temptation is just a minute at a time. I'm standing firm in this minute. And I'm standing firm in this minute. And I'm not going to give in in this minute. God, by your Holy Spirit, give me the power to resist and defeat that sin. And by doing so, you can live as the free Christ follower that you are. That Jesus died and rose from the grave to make you. So there they are. Four commitments, not easy. But if we'll follow through on them in the new year, will, I promise, make a radical difference in our lives. Only question that's left is, will you make those commitments? Will you make them? Will you commit yourself to forgetting your failures and giving up your grudges, restoring your broken relationships, turning your back on your sin? Would you close your eyes and bow your heads and would you just go to prayer, please? I just invite you to get in a posture of prayer and listening and conduct any business that you need to do with the Lord. Get about that. make those four commitments. Not one. Not a couple of them. Yeah, three. Uh Uh-uh. All four of them. Will you take God up on his invitation and will you will you give yourself to those four commitments? Will you and Jesus drive a stake in the ground right here, right now, today and say, in on those because man I need to be in on those I just invite you if you are if you will take God up on his invitation to those four that you just conduct that with him in the quietness of your heart that you and Jesus would just have these moments and that you would just commit and say yes I am committing myself to forgetting my failures and giving up my grudges and restoring my broken relationships and turning my back on my sin. And maybe you're here today and you hear those four commitments and you're like, yeah, that that sounds good, but you're back at the starting line of faith. 
you have yet to ask Jesus to be your Savior. And could I just ask you, if that's you, what's keeping you from starting 2010 by making the most significant choice of your entire life? Why wouldn't you invite Jesus to be your Savior and boss today? What's keeping you from that choice? God, we, we love you so much, God. And we're overwhelmed at your goodness that you've displayed over and over and over again toward us and for us. Especially the goodness, God, of you sending your son Jesus to the planet. We do not take you or him or anything for granted. We're just humbled and awed and we say thank you. Thank you for loving us to the depths that you love us. Thank you for giving us a shot at living life the way that you intended for it to be lived. And God, I know that right now in hearts all across this room, there's a tension happening as people are considering a first-time step across the line of faith in you. And if that describes you, wherever you're seated in this room, I just invite you to say to God, I want a relationship with you, God. Don't say it out loud. Just say it in the quietness of your heart. God, I want a relationship with you. Please come into my life. Please forgive me. And as much as I can understand in this moment, I acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross to bring me back to God. And because of what he did, I repent, I turn from my sin, I give up my own path, and God, I'm walking your way from here on out. Help me begin that new life in you. And if you prayed with me just then to step across the starting line of faith in Jesus and yield your life to him and make him your savior and your boss, that's the biggest decision of your whole life, not just of the new year, your whole life. And it's such a big deal that around here, we invite people to tell us when they made that decision. And I'm gonna ask you to do that with me right now. Not in an embarrassing way. Nobody's going to embarrass you. I'm the only person looking around this room. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to make eye contact with me? Just lift your hand and make eye contact with me. You can do that right now. Just say, yes, I started 2010 crossing the line of faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, in the back. I see you. Way to go. up and say yes Uh, God we're lashing ourselves to you and we're all in on these commitments and we're not just taking a couple of them or we're not just cherry picking the easy one yeah I'll do that one we're saying God we want our entire beings to be caught up in wrapped up in you and who you are. We want the real estate of our heart to be enlarged by you. And so would you come in power and might and strength, God, and shape us. We want at the end of 2010, about a year from now, God, to look back and see the remarkable change, the difference that you made in our lives. Not just something we did to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, 
but an actual change that you affected on us. And you'll get the glory and you'll get the credit because it's only you that can change a human heart, God. And it's what you're in the business of over and over and over again. And we're committed to be in that business with you, God. However you ask us to be, nudge our hearts appropriately. Give us words to speak to people so that we could reflect you and who you are, your nature, your character, your very being. That your kingdom would come on earth just as it is in heaven. And we're not just sitting back waiting for that to happen. We're engaged, we're active. We're bringing your kingdom with you, God. And it's all for you and it's all because of you. The one who is worthy of our praise and our adoration. The one who is worthy of our entire life. That we pray this in the name of Jesus.